Thank you very much to all of you for coming. My name is Marian Tupi. I'm a uh, policy analyst at the Cato Institute's uh, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. And uh, welcome to today's forum. Um, years ago, a friend of mine suggested that I read a, a book called In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, which was a book about uh, the last days of the uh, Mobutu Sese Seko's rule in, uh, in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, and um, about the corruption that permeated those last days and years. I was puzzled because I assumed that Ms. Wong was a Chinese person, and uh, I've never read anything about Africa written from a distinctly Asian perspective. Nonetheless, um, I read the book, and I loved it, and uh, I would recommend it uh, to all of you. Years later, I had uh, the pleasure of meeting uh, Michaela in uh, person. Together with some friends of mine, uh, we traveled through uh, Kenya. And uh, I can attest to the fact that Michaela is not only a brilliant writer, but also a great traveling companion. Little did we know uh, that um, only a year or so later, uh, those very parts of Kenya that uh, we visited uh, would be subject to some horrific ethnic violence, uh, which resulted from disputed presidential elections of uh, December 2007. This violence, uh, Wrong explains in her latest book, It's Our Turn to Eat, the story of the Kenyan whistleblower, uh, was ethnic in uh, its form, but its underpinnings had uh, much to do with the way that Africa and African states are being run. In Kenya, uh, like in much of Africa, government service is a source of public riches for private gain. In one word, it's a source of great degree of corruption for those who are in power. Uh, and not just for them, but also for the ethnic group to whom uh, or to which the corrupt politicians belong. As Wrong shows, this is not just an African problem. The West had been complicit in making the problem of corruption worse. We live in an age of apparently mad determination to get as much money out of the door as possible in the form of foreign aid, caring little about the effects of aid on growth and governance. Michaela is a distinguished international journalist uh, and has worked as a foreign correspondent covering events across the African continent. Uh, she worked for Reuters, for the BBC, and for the Financial Times. Her first book, as I mentioned, was In the Footsteps of Mr. Kurtz, and the second book was I Didn't Do It For You, uh, which was a book about Eritrea um, and uh, its relationship with the West as well as with its former ruler, Ethiopia. Her latest book, once again, is it's our turn to eat, and uh, it is brilliantly written, and I would highly recommend it to you. With that, over to you, Michaela. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really grateful to be asked here today. I've heard so much about the Cato Institute, um, and it's been a delight to be invited here by Marian, who made it possible. Um, it's, there's a whole saga around this book, which has only just come out here, but actually came out in February uh, in Britain and what we still laughingly call the Commonwealth. Um, uh, as, as the book was serialized in Kenyan papers, but as soon as, um, uh, as, soon as it was made available to Kenyan bookshops, thank you, um, it, nobody wanted to, to sell it. So everyone wanted to buy it, but no one wanted to sell it because the bookshops 
had decided that it was um, too hot to handle, as, as they referred to it. Um, and what you get when you have a public that wants to buy a book and then they can't is um, that basically uh, it gets pirated. And I had made the mistake of sending a pirate um, a PDF file, uh, of sending a PDF file to a newspaper to serialize it. And what happened is it was immediately stolen and then copied and sent around. And it was available for downloading on websites. And I was, and I became the, um, the most pirated book in Kenyan history, which maybe isn't saying much, but still was not a particularly pleasant experience for me. Uh, and also what, what you had is people would go to neighboring uh, countries, Uganda, Tanzania, um, South Africa, uh, buy up 10 copies, 15 copies, and take them in. And I was also running a, a system of mules. Um, so instead of giving them cocaine, it, it, we dealt in books instead, which are harder to um, hide. Um, uh, but I would meet them in London, give them 20 copies, and then they would take them in to, to Kenya. Um, and just to bring this story up to date, uh, as we speak, the USAID... Um, uh, uh, has done what I think is a really imaginative and interesting thing. Uh, they've decided that the book is important because Kenya is in a state of crisis uh, and people need to discuss the corruption and the ethnicity um, that have, have caused so much violence there recently. Um, and they've got together with Catholic churches, Protestant churches in Kenya, um, local NGOs, several radio stations and newspapers, and they're arranging for 5,000 copies to be made available to ordinary Kenyans who, who can't go abroad and buy it there. Um, so really interesting project, which is, um, is having a great effect. And there are big meetings taking place, and people are turning up in, um, in their hundreds to listen to it being read aloud. Um, and there's also a plan to, turn, uh, to uh, summarize it in Swahili, and play that on taxi buses that take people to work in the morning. So I, I'm not uh, familiar with uh, USAID's uh, projects around the world, but I think it's uh, one of the most in inventive things that I've ever heard of. Um, the, the book has had this strange impact in Kenya, obviously, because it's a very Kenyan story, but it also seems to have had um, a, a big impact across Africa. So I'm seeing when I Google my name, which as an author, of course, I do obsessively, um, I'm, I'm seeing reviews on, uh, from Ghana, from Gambia, Zambia, Nigeria, South Africa. And I think that tells you that although these are Kenyan issues, they're also very African issues. Um, and I think since, you know, I better just summarize what the book is about. The book tracks the, the, the story of someone called John Githongo. And John Githongo was um, uh, a friend of mine when I lived in Nairobi. Uh, he was a journalist, a very good journalist. He then went into anti-corruption work. And when we had um, a new government taking over um, uh, in 2003 in Kenya, and Daniel Arap Moy, the old sleazy guy, was, was booted out, um, John Githonga was appointed anti-corruption czar. And everyone thought, wow, amazing. You know, the government has got an anti-corruption czar. That's new. That's really good. And uh, what happened then is that basically John discovered that, um, you know, um, the words may have been there, but the delivery wasn't. And that there was um, a new massive scam going on, uh, a scam that was called Anglo Leasing because that was the name of one of the, the fake companies involved. These were all military security contracts where a lot of money went out of the Treasury uh, and nothing much, or in many cases, nothing at all came back. And the money, or certainly very large commissions, was probably, I mean, nobody knows because nobody has ever traced it, going into the bank accounts of the civil servants and the ministers who had signed the deals in the first place. 
Um, when John discovered this, he was moved, he was um, reinstated, uh, and he kept digging and digging and digging. And basically, his colleagues were coming to him and saying, you know, really good if you could stop doing that, John. Um, and eventually, when he realized that there was no backing, that the vice president, the finance minister, the justice minister, um, uh, and his, the internal security minister and his own president really were part of this deal. They weren't just um, being lazy and letting it happen. They were behind the deal. They were the people pulling the strings. He decided to flee. He didn't know what else to do. And he came to my flat in London because we were all friends and he wanted somewhere to hide up. So I suddenly had him turning up on my doorstep and saying that he would uh, appreciate if I could not tell anyone that he was staying with me. And if I could also, he'd appreciate it if I could send his resignation letter to State House. So th that was kind of how I got involved in this whole business. Um, he then faced a sort of classic dilemma. You know all this stuff. Do you, do you go public or do you keep it to yourself? Um, wait for things to, to pass and end up going home again. Um, and... As he was facing that dilemma, I was thinking, there's a book in this. This is a really interesting story. Um, but I always thought that this would have to be a book that was about more than just a, um, a four-year-old financial scandal, which is what it, you know, by the time the book came out, that's how long books take. Um, and I thought it would have to be a book about a system of rule that it seemed to me was what John had exposed. It wasn't something new. It was a, a way of running a country that dated right back to pre-colonial eras. I mean, it dated back to the way the whites had run Kenya, which is that you run it in the interests of your own narrow ethnic community, um, and you don't run it for the fellow citizens. Uh, you uh, run it uh, and you make sure that contracts go to your guys, you make sure that investment goes to your constituencies, and you, you make sure that jobs go, you know, you sack everybody who belongs to another ethnic community and appoint all, your, all, pe all the people from upcountry. And that's where the phrase, it's our turn to eat, comes from, which is a phrase that you hear all the time when you live in Kenya. It's actually also a phrase you hear elsewhere in Africa, but it is particularly Kenyan. Um, I think at the end of the day, this kind of, the corruption that, if you live in Africa, you, you see, boils down to identity. Um, it boils down to where you draw the limits of your compassion. Um, and in the West, we tend to draw the limits uh, of what we feel our duty is to our fellow man, duty in terms of helping people, helping them find jobs, helping them with shelter, helping them do, do well at school. Uh, we, draw, we draw those fa fairly narrowly because we know the state will pick up. My state picks up more than your state does um, because we have a national health service. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, in Africa, the, the circle is very, very wide, wide because the state doesn't pick up at all. Um, and uh, I think this is where, because um, the, that compassion becomes defined in terms of your ethnic community, um, this then plays into the politics of the corrupt elite who are basically feeding off the state structure and making sure that they have very nice flats in Washington, D.C. and London and very fat uh, bank accounts in Geneva. But they can then present what they're doing to their own community as something that they're doing on behalf of the wider community, the ethnic community. So it's our turn to eat. Don't complain about me stealing and don't complain about my car because, um, you know, I'm doing it for you guys. We've got to make sure everyone else doesn't benefit, you know, and I'm looking after you. 
Um, and so you get a situation where Africans, it seems to me, end up, they feel complicit in this system because they are playing the game themselves. Every, every civil servant is a big man to someone lower down the chain who he's helping. Um, and they also tend to think that they're doing... I mean, it also reaches a stage where they actually glorify this form of corruption. Um, so there was a very interesting story that someone told me that I mentioned in the book where Kamlish Patney, who is an Asian businessman, a Kenyan Asian businessman, who is responsible for one of the biggest corruption scandals in Kenyan history called Goldenberg, which um, created a 10-year recession, um, was being interviewed on, on te Kenyan television. And instead of um, um, people sort of treating him like a leper, which I like to think is the way he would be treated in many societies, at the end, when the, the, the interview had been taped, um, all the cameramen and the, the Kirby grips and the girls who did makeup rushed up to him and were asking for his autograph because he was seen as having being a hero. He'd played the game very successfully. Um, so you get this reversal, this sort of um, reversal of moral values. Um, this is what I wanted to describe in my book. Um, but I also wanted to describe challenges to that way of running a country and challenges to that way of thinking about how you should run a country. Um, there is an interesting statistic in most African states that we know that around 70% of the population is under the age of 40. Um, that's an incredible statistic, if you think about it. And I think what the Jongithongo story um, captures, in a way, is a generational clash that is taking place in Africa, where two visions of the future are clashing head-on. And you have an older generation who are running Kenya, and they're also running many other African states, because in Africa there's this enormous respect for older, older men. They tend to be men. Um, and they have their roots are in the rural experience, and they do see things in an essentially ethnic and tribal way. And then you have the young people, and John is uh, only just in his early 40s, who have grown up in the city. There's a huge uh, trend of urbanization taking place. Um, and they don't tend to think of themselves as being Kikuyu, Kuo, um, Luo, or Kamba. They tend to think of themselves as being Kenyan. Um, and they date other Kenyans. And they meet them at school. And they marry them. Um, and I think they have a completely different value structure. And I think, um, I know if you ask John who he thinks he is, he would say that he is a Kenyan first and a Kikuyu second. I don't think his father's generation would have said that. So when he was facing this dilemma in my flat in London of um, should he go public or should he um, just shut up and eventually go home, um, uh, he was also facing a question of which generation did he belong to. Um, he was in a very extraordinary position because um, John is somebody who thinks everything through in a way that the rest of us might feel a little obsessive even. Um, and as he had begun to hear a lot of rather revealing things in his office in State House, he had done something extraordinary, which is that he had actually taped the conversation secretly. He had had a microphone hidden in his shirt uh, and he had logged hour after hour after hour of these conversations. And the conversations caught ministers asking him to stop investigating, caught the head of the Anti-Corruption Commission 
telling him that if he carried on, he'd be killed. Um, so he had material for an extraordinary expose. And what he finally decided to do was to put the interests of the public, the Kenyan, the, the Kenyan citizen ahead of his tribe, and to, um, to go public. Uh, he wrote a dossier addressing it to the president, who ignored it, just as he ignored everything that, um, that John had done. And it was leaked. And you can call it up on the internet if you want to. Um, and it, it was splashed across the Kenyan newspapers, splashed across the international uh, press. Um, and one of the tapes was also released, um, which uh, shows the justice minister of the day, Karaitu Murungi, trying to blackmail John into stopping his investigations. That was actually played on the BBC and picked up by Kenyan um, media and played about four times. So it's a pretty extraordinary thing to be sitting in an African country watching, listening to your justice minister um, trying to blackmail your anti-corruption uh, czar and stop him doing his work. Um, so I think it was an absolute epoch-making moment. Um, you could say that the, the, the results were not epoch-making. Um, there was a, a furore. Some of the ministers stepped aside. In Kenya, people don't resign. They step aside. And as someone pointed out at the time, this is really useful because then you can step back. Um, um, it also didn't seem to affect donor lending to Kenya. Um, strangely that week, I thought astonishingly that week, that was the week that the World Bank actually chose to announce the $225 million new loan to Kenya, which I think has to be the worst timing ever in the history of the World Bank. But they didn't see fit to reconsider that. So um, eventually some of those ministers were reappointed. They stepped back in that little dance. Um, and I sort of thought that that was the end of the story, but I was wrong uh, no pun intended, um, because <laughs> we still had the elections to go, and the elections of 2007 turned out to be the most bloody elections in Kenyan history. And basically what happened is both sides rigged, but when it became clear that um, Kibaki, the serving, uh, the serving uh, president, was going to rig himself to a victory that he did not deserve, um, the... Uh, ethnic communities that belong to the opposition, especially the Luo um, and the Kalenjin, um, realized that they were going to be out in the cold because under the it's our turn to eat system of running Kenya, um, you get nothing if you lose. It's a, it's a zero-sum game. Um, and they, they came out and they decided to fight for what they believed uh, was, uh, was rightfully theirs. And then the army responded. And also there was a lot of very nasty... Um, seizing of farms run by the Kikuyus who belong, you know, the president is a Kikuyu, so their land was being um, stolen and they were, they were forcibly thrown off their farms. Um, I think the story, uh, the conclusion of that is what so many people think of as um, corruption isn't regarded often as being a, 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 a factor that causes the instability or implosion of nation states. And I think what, what um, happened in Kenya shows that, in fact, that's exactly what it does when it's taken to the nth degree and when you have a population that's very, very aware of what's going on. Um, Kenya today, as I speak to you, is a very volatile, fragile and traumatised state. Uh, I often meet people who say, oh, yeah, Kenya, yeah, no, that got really nasty, didn't it? Is, hasn't it all been sorted out now because there was a coalition government that was set up, Kofi Annan intervened? 
And the, the sad thing is, no, none of it's been sorted out. All of these um, reports and commissions, the commissions that were supposed to investigate what happened, yeah, they took place, they delivered reports. Some of them were very hard-hitting reports, but nothing's been done to deliver on those reports. Um, and it's actually a very frightening place now to visit Kenya because there's a surface appearance of calm, and underneath it, everyone is talking about when the next violence breaks out. Um, and now you have this phenomena of ethnic militias, which always used to exist, but now they've been armed, they've been whipped up, they were used by the politicians before the last elections. They're ready to go again. And everyone's saying, if it happens next time, when they're saying, when it happens next time, it won't stop. It'll go, it'll be taken to, through to its logical limit, whatever that may be. Uh, we also have a flashpoint coming up, which is that there's going to be a new constitution on the referendum, which raises the whole issue of where power in Kenya lies. And that's coming up as soon as April. Um, so the clock is ticking, really, on, on Kenya. Um, I would like to see the International Committee drawing up plans um, to send a peacekeeping force to Kenya for that referendum and for the next elections, because I think what we know now is that elections in Kenya will not be free, will not be fair, and will not be free from violence. So I think that's something that um, people should be thinking about here in Washington. Um, but I, I also think, uh, I mean, my book is written with two constituencies in mind. Uh, one is Kenyans who I think need to start seeing that there's a link between the small-scale uh, corruption that they stage in their daily lives and the top, the big stuff that the political elite does because it is basically tacitly, tacitly accepted by the community. Um, but I would also want and hope that my book is read by um, uh, another large group, which is the, the Western donors who lend to Kenya um, and who really put their, their support behind the... Um, the government that replaced Daniel Arik Moyes in 2003. I think the question we have to ask ourselves from Washington is, did, did we help or hinder the anti-corruption movement in Kenya? Do we help or hinder people like John Githongo in Africa generally? Because they're the guys that we think and we say we want to support. Um, and I think this is a very important question at the moment because across Africa, Anti, the anti-corruption campaign is doing really badly. Um, you've got Nuhu Rabadu, who's a Nigerian policeman, who sort of is the Nigerian equivalent of John. He's just um, run into, gone into exile, just like John. Uh, he was a subject of an assassination attempt um, and um, has taken a position in Oxford and St. Anthony's College. Um, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwelia, who was a sort of reformist finance minister, who also did a lot to clean up corruption in Nigeria. She's um, back at the World Bank, having sort of lost her fight. Uh, in South Africa, Jacob Zuma seems to have survived any suggestions that he was involved in the arms scandal um, and became president uh, notwithstanding. Not and the Scorpions, which was that special police unit, has been disbanded. So if you look across Africa, whistleblowers have... Um, are in exile or they're out of work. Um, and my conclusion, writing this book, was that we aren't helping people like that. In fact, what we're doing is positively undermining them. Um, it is sabotaging their work. Uh, we may do that with the best of intentions in, here in the West, but that's not really an excuse. 
Um, there are a series of factors. One of those is strategic. Uh, in places like Kenya, we have a tendency to look at certain countries and decide that we can't afford to cut them off. We can't afford not to support their governments. And if you look at Kenya uh, and you look at Somalia, Somalia is imploding. Kenya is a key ally in the region. Sudan is also looking very fragile. So I can imagine that people in, in Washington think, oh, you know, we have to be on good terms with Kenya. But that's not the only issue. Um, oh, and in that context, by the way, I gather that uh, military aid to Kenya is due to quadruple in the next, uh, in the next few years. So um, that's clearly, you know, army thinking. Let's keep in good with these guys. They're a force for stability. Uh, sort of ironic, given what happened last year. Um, but there is another reason why I think we, we routinely undermine people like John. Uh, and I would say it was the dominance of the humanitarian uh, imperative. And there, you know, I have to sort of lay the blame on the sort of the Jeffrey Sachs way of looking at development. Um, I re remember meeting, I quote this in the book, um, meeting a Kenyan journalist who said, you know, here in Kenya, we get the impression that you guys really need to lend to us more than we need to be lent to. There is this, this drive to lend, which is really all about meeting what our own, what Western electorates want, what looks good to them in announcements, what gets praised by Geldof and Bono, uh, rather than what actually helps Africans. And part of this mentality then leads to an obsession by the donor community with um, symbolic, uh, symbols, symbolic figures. Um, so in Kenya, anyone who knew Kenya would have realized that ethnic um, relations were getting incredibly poisonous and really quite frightening for years before la the last elections. Yet when I used to speak to donor representatives all the time, all they ever spoke about was 6% um, growth rates. Fantastic, 6% growth rates, 6%. And you kind of thought, where's the 6% going? Because it's clearly not going across the country in a uniform way. And when you visited Kisumu, which is a town in, Lu in the Luo area of the opposition, leader, Rilo Dinga. It certainly hadn't been spent in Kasumu. So Kenyans knew where the 6% was being spent. Um, and they felt it was being spent on the president's tribe. Um, I think we should also be honest about another factor um, in this whole humanitarian imperative, which is institutional inertia and the ambitions of individual aid officials. Um, you know, self-interest does play a role. A World Bank official or an IMF official who wants to be promoted is not going to do very well within his own organization if he goes around canceling projects all the time. Uh, aid programs develop an inertia of their own. It's much easier to start them than it is to stop them. It takes years, in fact, to stop them and years again to start them up. And I think what, what I felt I was seeing in Kenya when I studied what, what was going on with the World Bank and the IMF and the donors was uh, it was a bit like the situation you used to get with... Um, uh, there's this syndrome called Stockholm Syndrome, which, which used to be um, uh, when hostages... I think because this happened in Stockholm. I, think it, I can't remember which, who the hostage takers were. But the, the hostages would fall in love with the kidnappers and, and start sort of remonstrating with people in government who was trying to negotiate and telling them that, no, they were really nice people, much misunderstood. And, um, I mean, I think the relationship between an aid uh, institution and a donor uh, uh, government and the recipient government should be one of creative tension, should be constantly being tested. It shouldn't be one of overly coziness. 
uh, what you got in Kenya, and it was quite extraordinary, it was something that most people in the journalistic community in Kenya didn't even know, was you actually had two World Bank directors who rented their, <laughs> their villas off the president of the day. I mean, and the house was right next door to the president's villa in Mathega, and there was a little path running between the two. And you kind of think, hang on, that's a bit close for comfort, isn't it? <laughs> and when I confronted the World Bank with this, and I sort of said, do you think that's appropriate that your World Bank director should be paying rent to the president of a country to whom he you know, regularly has to sign off project aid and programs, uh, pro uh, world um, aid pro projects? They said, well, it's really hard to get houses um, in Kenya that aren't owned uh, by uh, <laughs> key political figures. And you're kind of like, well, it can't be that hard. And they said, anyway, when they signed the deal, when they signed the contract, he was head of the opposition. I sort of thought, actually, it's really inappropriate to rent off the head of the opposition as well. You know, it doesn't work. This, this, and the fact that, I mean, apparently this had been signed off by inspectors who had gone out, visited... Um, uh, the, the, the World Bank representative of the day, they'd, they'd stayed in the house, I suspect, and they didn't think there was any problem there. So I think that's, you know, a loss of perspective that, that uh, is, is really alarming. Um, if we look at the sort of indi individual um, events of the John Githongo story... I remember that when he came and stayed um, in my flat, I was thinking, oh, you know, this is going to be a really, I mean, really big story and everyone's going to freeze aid or they're going to threaten to freeze aid. Well, it was a really big story in that everyone's kind of, what's happened to the anti-corruption czar? Where is he staying? And I was being phoned up all the time by people asking to know where he'd gone. But the aid wasn't frozen. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, I imagine they're going to be queuing up. And I, I asked John, I, I said, are you getting lots of visits, and lots of calls from people in DFID, my own um, British department that lends money, uh, gives money to, uh, to Africa or the World Bank or, you know, uh, people uh, from the IMF? Are they coming to see you? Are they asking to be debriefed? Because presumably they realize that, you know, corruption is what a big corruption scandal is to blame for this. And. Um, presumably they want to know what's happening to their taxpayers' money that, you know, you, you, that uh, they, mu they must think is being stolen. And, um, and he said no. And in fact, um, they didn't go. They weren't interested. They didn't want to know. Um, and when his dossier, which I mentioned, was, was published, um, Uh, I mean, it, it, I believe that the U.S., I'm just looking at my figures here, the U.S. cut off aid, which amounted to one-seventieth of its yearly aid budget to Kenya. So that's not what you call a, a, strong, um, a strong message, I, I think. Um, and, <laughs> and this was an aid scandal. Uh, um, the Anglo leasing was a scandal that involved nearly a billion dollars worth, which was actually equivalent to the, aid, the yearly aid program of Kenya. So you sort of think that you might just wonder why you're bothering to give aid to uh, an African country if, if it's sort of stealing the same amount or very similar amount. Um, the World Bank, for its part, during the entire time that Anglo leasing was constantly in the press and John uh, had uh, publicised this, under Colin Bruce, who was the director, um, he actually pushed the lending programme ever upwards, ever upwards until it uh, totaled $1.3 billion dollars. Um, and that was, he was very proud of having done that. Um, and when the elections were rigged, uh, Colin Bruce also um, sent a, a message to um, uh, a private member, which was leaked, 
to headquarters in, in Washington saying that he believed that Kibaki was the legitimate winner of the elections, which is something that not a single independent monitor of those elections believed. Um, so I think um, that if you, not only does this kind of behavior undermine people like John Gisongo, um, you have to consider that it actually does, it does something much more dramatic than that. You know, if you have a scenario in which this way of running a country leads to um, the, the sort of elections we saw with 1,300 people killed and hundreds of thousands of people made homeless, um, the question is, do we have blood on our hands? Does the donor community have blood on our hands? Um, if I can just summarize the, with a few recommendations. Uh, do I have time for those? Yes, yes. okay. Um, the point is that people like John Gathongo think that donor um, behavior in Africa implies to a, a form of implicit racism. Um, and I've begun to think that I agree with him, that it, um, Africa's being held to lower standards than other places. Uh, and we are, we're making it very hard for ordinary Africans, not just John Gethongo, but people who are trying to combat um, corruption in their own lives and trying to persuade their leaders to run their own countries in different ways. We undermine them on a regular basis. Um, in terms of actual, I, would, I have a few recommendations for, for the donor community. One is I'd like a bit of realism about who they're dealing with in places like Kenya. Um, these are people, the Mount Kenya Mafia is what people call the, the government around uh, Kibaki, and they're not called that lightly. I mean, these are people who are wanted, uh, whose names almost certainly feature on a list that was given to Kofi Annan, who deserved to be investigated for fermenting ethnic violence that led to 1,300 people being killed. Um, they're people who are, are almost certainly responsible for a series of fuel and grain scandals that have pauperized ordinary Kenyans. Um, Uhuru Kenyatta, who's the finance minister who donors deal with on a regular basis, recently admitted in public that there had been a typo in one of his budget um, statements, which amounted to $135 million. Now, I still haven't understood whether that, where that money went, but apparently it was a typo. And that's, that's our main partner that, that you know, the donors are dealing with, Uhuru Kenyatta, who mislaid 10 billion shillings um, of money. Um, so I think, you know, donors really have to do as much of, if they're going to send money to Kenya, um, don't send it to the government. Don't let the, the government get its hands on it. Keep it out of government hands as much as possible. Um, we also need to recognize at a deeper policy level that there is um, a link between corruption and political instability and that aid is always um, going to be political. You cannot separate the two. You cannot pretend that you are playing a a political neutral game. And this is something that it seems to me uh, Jeffrey Sachs totally fails to recognize that there's any such thing as politics. Um, I would like to, to re, um, yeah, to uh, tinker with Clinton's, it's the economy stupid. And I'd like to say, it's the politics stupid. That would be my message to the donors. Uh, leadership, poor leadership, criminal leadership, thuggish leadership in Africa does more damage than global warming or trade imbalances ever could. Um, we also need to get real about something else which we haven't really spoken about. The Western donors at one stage really helped um, 
to set up what they thought was going to be a good idea, anti-corruption units, police units, to deal with corruption in Africa. Uh, in Kenya, it happens to be the KACC. Um, the judge who runs that ended up warning John not to dream of coming back to the country and told him his life was in danger. He told him repeatedly, did everything he could to discourage this man from going to, back to Kenya and, and, and uh, giving testimony. This is a story across Africa. All of these corruption units have become tainted. They're part of the system. They, they, they are a laughing stock in Africa, yet they go to international conferences here and are treated as genuinely representing um, uh, anti-corruption efforts in that particular country. <coughs> You can only fight corruption through the old, boring institutions, the police, the judiciary, parliament. Donors do try and prop those up, and they do try and help those. Um, but that's, that's the way to do it. The, the, um, these anti-corruption units have proved to be a complete bust. Um, and then the final thing I would say is, here in the West, you should never forget how much influence and impact you can have in Africa. Um, in Kenya, in the early 1990s, um, Moy actually um, moved, uh, he introduced multi-party democracy because of united donor um, uh, pressure. It has to be united. Too often the donors are split and they're all pushing in different directions. In Kenya, that's what they're doing at the moment. Um, you need a clear message to go out there. And the other thing to remember here is that you have the most important... Um, signal and the biggest trump card that you will ever have in this country, which is President Obama. Um, he's an incredibly um, important uh, trump card in Kenya, but he is across Africa. Africans feel they have a man here who understands them. They sort of feel that they kind of got one of their own guys in power. They don't know quite how it happens, but there he is. He's, he's there. He's in Washington. They also, in many ways, especially in Kenya, feel that he represents the kind of moral leadership that they would dearly like their own uh, governments uh, to show them and that their own governments consistently fail to show. Um, Obama understands Kenya as no other man does. If you've read his book about his father, uh, you, will, you will know that. Um, and you can use that Obama card to really, really change things. There are a host of small things that may not seem much, but they have a lot of impact in places like Kenya. Um, things like asset freezes, freezing the assets of the thieving politicians um, who do all the damage. Things like not letting them into your country and then leaking that information to the local African press. This humiliates people in public. It humiliates them in the eyes of their electorate. And it really, really does a lot of damage. And I would just like to see more and more of those messages being sent out. Obama got off to a great start when he said that he wasn't going to be going to Kenya. And I've met a lot of Kenyans. Uh, you know, he's saying he's going to Ghana for his first official president. I've met a lot of Kenyans who are saying, thank, thank you, Obama, because you're not coming here and you're not giving the kiss uh, of, you know, your, your blessing to, to our government. You know, we don't need those kind of gestures. We want this government to realise what the world thinks about it because that's what we, the Kenyan electorate, also thinks about it. Thank you. Thank you, Michaela. That was fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Frank Vogel. 
a co-founder, former vice chairman and advisor to Transparency International, the global anti-corruption organization. He's also the co-founder and, and board member of the Partnership for Transparency Fund, a trustee of the Committee for Economic Development and a member of the International Councils on New Israel Fund and the United Nations Association of the Greater Washington Area. Uh, Frank runs the Vogel Communications, um, an uh, international uh, public uh, relations firm that specializes in finance. He was born in the United Kingdom. Um, he became a foreign economics correspondent 40 years ago, first with uh, Reuters in uh, London and Brussels, and then with uh, the London Times in Frankfurt and in Washington. Uh, for nine years uh, prior to opening his own firm, he served as the Director of Information and Public Affairs at the World Bank. Please help me welcome Frank Vogel. Thank you very much. I, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure being here. I'm not quite sure how I follow Michaela's sort of presentation, and I'm certainly not going to be critical. And I, I, I feel very guilty speaking to you before lunch about a book called It's Our Turn to Eat. Um, but I shall try, and I shall try and be brief. Uh, it's, it, this is a superb book, and, it's, uh, and that's to be expected if you've read Michaela's previous books about the Congo and about Eritrea. Um, this one is a, is a gripping mystery tale, actually, but it's, uh, but it's more than that. Um, and I'd like to focus my comments really just on three issues that Michaela's already addressed, but perhaps with a slightly different perspective, although I don't disagree with anything that she said. Uh, first, corruption in Africa and Kenya. Second, the roles of aid agencies in this context. And third, briefly, the Gathongo tragedy. Michaela highlights John's journey from the seeming heights of political power in Kenya to exile at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. Uh, more recently, as Michaela's already mentioned, um, a similar journey has been taken by Nuhu Ribadu. Uh, he's courageous, too courageous perhaps, certainly for his former masters in, in the Nigerian government, he was the executive chairman of the Nigerian Economic and Financial Crimes Commission. He did an incredible job. He helped to repatriate hundreds of millions of dollars that uh, former President Abacha had stolen. Uh, he had indicted uh, a whole variety of leading public figures in Nigeria. And for that, he became increasingly threatened until the point that he fled. And Nuhu, just like John, is part of that younger generation that Michaela talked about and that I don't think we focus on enough uh, here in Washington. Um, in testimony prepared recently for a congressional hearing, Nuhu said something that really captures what Michaela says in great detail in her book. And so let me quote Nuhu. He says, the corruption endemic to our region is not just about bribery, but about mismanagement, incompetence, abuse of office, and the inability to establish justice and the rule of law. As resources are stolen, confidence not just in democratic governance, but in the idea of just leadership ebbs away. As the lines of authority with the government erode, so too do traditional authority structures. In the worst cases, eventually all that is left to hold society together 
is the idea that someday it may be your day to get yours. This does little to build credible, accountable institutions or put the right policies in place. We tend too often to segment corruption from mismanagement from all these other things. Um, we shouldn't. We need to see it as a whole. We need to understand how, for example, the aid agencies and the IMF and others when they're working in Kenya are in fact part of a very broad political process and, as Michaela has suggested, part contributing to the political mismanagement and undermining of good governance that has such potential. This book talks a lot about that. I remember very similar statements in 1993 when Transparency International was launched. And they came from General Olusogun Obasanjo, who then became president of Nigeria and tried and failed to smash corruption in his country. Um, the African Union has asserted, and I can't vouch for their statistics, that a quarter of GDP in Africa, uh, a quarter of $140 billion a year, is lost as a result of corruption. Nuhu Ribado concludes, or concluded recently in his talk in Washington, with the following. He said, the West must understand that corruption is part of the reason that African nations cannot fight disease properly, cannot feed their populations, cannot educate their children, and use their creativity and energy to open the doorway to the future they deserve. The crime is not just theft. It's negligence, wanton negligence, the full impact of which is likely impossible to know. Many sub-Saharan African countries have this nightmarish corruption problem. And we have to ask whose fault is it? A case can be made, and Dambiso Moyo strives to make it in her new book, Dead Aid, that it's really the fault of the Western aid agencies, both bilateral and multilateral. Uh, let me tell you something that, obviously, I feel quite passionate about this for a very simple reason. I've been involved in this for far longer than um, I had even really remembered until I went through some notes very recently. And I found a memo that I wrote on the 6th of June, 1985, 24 years ago. At that time, I was the World Bank's Director of Information and Public Affairs and advisor to the president of the bank, uh, on communications. And I had been to Kenya, and I went to see bank projects, and I went to meet with diplomats, I went to meet with journalists, and I went to learn. And when I came back, I wrote a memo, confidential memo, to Kim Jacox, the then Vice President for Africa at the World Bank. And in several pages, I reported what I'd learned. Um, I drew attention to lax bank project supervision. I stress that major efforts of Western governments to support their leading companies in winning huge contracts for cement factories, aircraft, and naval vessels that were completely unnecessary for Kenya. I noted that diplomats told me, and I quote, noting that there's someone, I think, from the IMF in the front row, uh, diplomats told me, and I quote, the IMF, desperate to find a success in Africa, rushed into a soft deal with Kenya that will prove to be a disaster. 
Permit me to read just one paragraph from the memo that I wrote back then. It goes like this. It says that journalists see the scale of corruption now engulfing Kenya. There were no big deals in Kenya today without political payoffs. The system of business has become rotten. One businessman cannot obtain an import license for critical machinery, while another can flood the stores at Christmas with chocolates from Switzerland. One businessman will complain that it takes 18 months to get a foreign exchange permit, while another will get his cash within three weeks. If you want to travel frequently, you must say you are going abroad on business and pay 10% of the foreign exchange you want to take with you to the man who comes to your office with the necessary forms. If you're in a hurry for anything in Kenya, you have to make a payoff. If you want currency, you use the efficient black market. Kenya, the journalist said, has developed the Benzi way of life, named after Mercedes-Benz. Everyone knows about it and talks about it more and more openly. That was 24 years ago. Kim Jacox and the World Bank did absolutely nothing about my memo. And they did nothing when, the, when a representative of the World Bank in Nairobi, Peter Eigen, left the World Bank and set up Transparency International in 1993 and appealed to the bank to start taking corruption seriously. And then Jim Wolfenson spoke about how corruption was going to become the big bank priority in 1997. His fine rhetoric was up here, but the lending just continued and continued and continued to the point where a year and a half ago, Paul Volcker and a commission looking at the World Bank said the anti-corruption effort in the bank has still not been mainstreamed. And despite all of the more recent publicity by the World Bank and by Bob Zellick, nothing is changing. The money is just pouring out. And so the memos that I started to write in 1985, and it seems so long ago, and the recent material, and the arguments of the uh, uh, Ms. Moyo and others, somehow or other seem to have no impact whatsoever. And this is why I think this particular book is so important, because it gives us the detail. It moves us from the generalities to the precise detail. Here we have a narrative about what really happens when with the complicity of Western aid donors, we get into a situation that leads to the massacre of thousands of people and offers the prospect of even worse violence. And it's not just Kenya, it's many other countries as well. But where Moyo is wrong, and wrong is right, uh, is that it's not just the aid agencies. They're not just to blame. The former, Moyo, seems to blame all African corruption on the aid agencies. Michaela shows us that while they have a great deal to account for, she's also unsparing in this narrative about the collusion, the evil, the arrogance, the greed, and the dangerousness of the people who have obtained power in Kenya and who believe that it is now their turn to eat. This book goes to the tribal roots of the problems, the complexity of tribal loyalties at the helm of politics. And we need to understand that very well. It is just too simple, perhaps, just to blame the aid agencies. 
We need to address that. But we also need to be realistic about what is happening at the helm of government in too many countries in sub-Saharan Africa. We could talk about others, but let's just focus on sub-Saharan Africa today. One of my, let me just finally talk a bit about the tragedy of John Gathongo. One of my fellow co-founders of Transparency International in 1993 was Joe Gathongo, a Kenyan businessman described in, in this book, and John's father, a lovely man who inspired his son to become the Kenyan champion of anti-corruption. And in time, the victim of political leadership cabal that determined that if they couldn't co-opt him, then they would threaten him. <coughs> As McKellar tells us, he fled to London. I saw him just after he arrived in London. He was angry, he was frustrated. And like Nuhu Rabadu, he believed then, and I think he still believes, that we must do much, much more publicly to build awareness about the full political dimensions and the full context and environment of corruption today in Africa. As you read this book, However, you have to ask yourselves, are we doing enough to support people like John Anuhu? I agree with Michaela that we certainly should talk to the World Bank and others and aid agencies about being realistic. But I don't really think that that's quite enough. I don't think it's enough to sort of wring our hands and say, well, John Anuhu found refuge in a nice quaint college in Oxford and can occasionally go out and give guest lectures. I think we need to do lots more. I think the Cato Institute and other such institutions need to develop initiatives that can provide serious support to these courageous heroes, finance their ongoing research and publications, and ensure that these champions of integrity have a voice that is heard. We need Africans like that to make the case clearly and publicly about their own country. And the more we can get them the platforms, the more we can support their research, the more we can support their perspectives, the more we will get the realistic debate. And not nearly enough is being done today. So let me say in conclusion, the publication of this book is important. It provides a detailed narrative that we really need to pay attention to. It goes way beyond the broad generalities about Africa that are so dismissive that people say, oh, we've heard that all again, all before, et cetera, et cetera. It's very important, and I hope that the Cato Institute and other institutions here in Washington will pay attention to this to understand that it is in the detail of learning really about the disintegration of a society, the people who are trying to bring about change, what happens to those people, and yet the fight is not hopeless. And if we believe that, then I think we can give it support. And so it's been a great privilege to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we will now open it to Q&A. Um, I will ask you to keep your questions um, as short as possible. Uh, if you would uh, tell us who you are and um, then ask your questions in the form of a question, and we'll try to get as many of them in as possible. Uh, yes, sir. Hi. Uh, love your book. Uh, not quite finished with it. But I want to know if... 
my name is Tom Harriman. Um, I want to know if the power sharing arrangement in Kenya uh, uh, that followed the last election in 2007, if that has had any effect on the uh, level of corruption or if the Odinga uh, ministers have been sucked into the uh, corruption maelstrom. Do you want to take a couple? Or well, let's just cover each one individually. Okay. Um, they certainly have been sucked in. I don't think they did it too reluctantly, though. Um, uh, the, the, one of the main scandals, and it was actually a very interesting moment in Kenyan history because suddenly people began to see the links between this abstract billions that are being stolen and, and the way it was affecting their life. One of the main scandals has been grain, which suddenly there just wasn't any grain, you know, and the prices went up in the supermarket. And uh, it, it turns out the agriculture minister, William Ruto, uh, was very much involved in that and all the people below him. William Ruto was Odinga's, one of Odinga's um, closest allies, a Kalenjing guy from the Rift Valley. Um, so the opposition has been, you know, happily taking part. And I think this is, this is what's so depressing is that when you have a coalition government, you know, it gets, it's everybody's turn to eat, but um, not, not in a good way. Um, so, um, no, sadly, sadly, I, I think um, what people say is that both sides are kind of eating as fast as they can in anticipation that these new elections are coming up. That means they're eating from personal, you know, they're going to be buying the, 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 the nice cars and the, the money's going off to their bank accounts, but they're also preparing war chests. And that money, you know, it, it is literally war chests because that money that gets sent into in the forms of weaponry and sent out to the ethnic militias that will then do the fighting when the next round of um, bloodletting starts. So I'm afraid it's been a very uninspiring um, uh, vision. Yeah. Uh, yes, My name is Jane Kamau. I am, I am Kikuyu. I haven't eaten yet. I don't expect to. When you talked about um, foreign governments denying visas to the big people, the ministers and the big government officials, I don't know that that goes far enough. I grew up in Kenya, and one of the things that really suffered was education. Now, these big people have money, and they send, well, take our money, and they send their children abroad education and send them abroad for treatment. So they really don't have any incentive to do anything in the country. How about not den denying visas, not just to the parents, but also to the children? Yeah, I, I, I think that is something that is being discussed more and more. Um, I mean, I'm not privy to these discussions, but I, I, it's certainly an idea that I've heard being debated recently. And um, I, I think it's a good idea, definitely. I mean, you could say that they're being made to pay for the sins of the fathers, but of course they're getting their education thanks to the sins of the fathers uh, because these are often very expensive um, uh, colleges that they're attending, very expensive private schools that they attend. So, I, no, I, I'd be, I, I'm very supportive of that. You know, America has been a lot more forthright and a lot more proactive on this front than my own country. And, uh, I, and I, I think it, has, it really does have a huge impact, and, uh, and I'd like to see it continuing. Howard Wolpe. Uh, Howard Wolpe, uh, Woodrow Wilson International Center. Um, I'm going to go to the question of um, the policy responses to, to all of this, because one of the clear implications of, of your analysis, with which I wholly agree, 
is that uh, corruption must be understood in the context, the context of a zero-sum sense of the political world. That if one person's success, one person's success or even survival can only come at the expense of the other guy. And there's no recognition of interdependence or of uh, the value of collaboration with your competitors. So it's a really um, winner-take-all, zero-sum uh, orientation. That suggests, I think, that corruption may more usefully be understood as a symptom rather than as a cause, a symptom of the fundamental divided nature of most African societies, function of the colonial history, and that the challenge from a policy sense is not simply to focus on the normative side of how do you go after the bad guys, but rather how do you help begin to rebuild a sense of, of, of national connection among the various elements of that nation state. How do you rebuild the trust? How do you rebuild the relationships? And how do you change that okay. fundamental political paradigm? Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. And, and definitely the roots of some of this lie in the colonial state um, and the fact that it was also a non-participatory and uh, a minority way of running a country that was then inherited. Um, I, and, uh, I, but I think, you know, you have to have the leadership there. I mean, people will often draw the, le uh, the, the um, analogy between Kenya and the way it was run and how it is today and, and Tanzania under Nyerere. Now, uh, Tanzania has a very high level of corruption, but you certainly aren't seeing the kind of bloodletting that we saw. Um, and there was a definite aim there in the, the post-independence state of Tanzania to, to run it, uh, to, to create a sense of nationhood in the sense that the state was run for the, for the sake of all citizens and to downplay ethnic differences, to promote Swahili, to create a new capital that represented all Tanzanians. You know, this is not the way Kenyatta ran uh, 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 Kenya, nor did Moy. Um, so the leadership has got to be the key. You have to have that leadership. And, and sadly, you know, if you look around the political class at the moment in Kenya, it isn't there at the moment. I think it's going to be coming. You know, I think it's going to be coming from that new generation coming through, but they ain't there yet. Oh, I, ju I just want to add one thing. We haven't mentioned the role of business and international business at all. Um, I wouldn't underestimate the corrosive impact sometimes of multinational companies seeking contracts. And when we talk about, you know, these scholarships for the children of various powerful people, be surprised how many of them are actually paid for by corporations. Um, and how tempting it is for up-and-coming politicians sometimes to be wined and dined and a little bit more by international corporations as well. And you only have to look at the Siemens case just as one example of on-the-record evidence of, of, of this sort of corruption. So this is a complicated dynamic. And whilst we can blame a lot of the homegrown things, um, a lot of Africans also are quick to blame foreign companies, too, for part of this. And I think to some degree that they, they are right. Yes, ma'am. In the hat. Hi, I'm Lois Tett, a freelance writer. Um, an episode where a very famous minister here in the U.S. of A. bought all the diamond rights to Liberia and paid the Liberians 10% back. Uh, this kind of thing, when it's allowed to happen, and our press say nothing about it, uh, it seems like we endorse this kind of behavior. And other people will look at this and say, well, it's okay to school Africa. It's okay to cheat him. I mean, you know, he is agreeing with it, and yet nobody chastises this fellow. Why? 
Robinson I, is I'm, I'm not familiar with that case, um, I'm afraid. Uh, I haven't followed it. But uh, all I can say is that, um, you know, the States has a much better record than my country, than Britain does, uh, where uh, we're complete hypocrites um, about pursuing what our companies get up to in Africa. Uh, there's, only, well, there's only been, I believe, one case. No, there was just recently a second one, and these are small cases that aren't very important of, of, of uh, UK companies being um, prosecuted for bribing abroad, although we've signed up to all sorts of anti-corruption charters. Um, you guys have actually um, got a much, much better record on this. And I, I mean, I think there's this remarkable case of Halliburton being pursued in Nigeria. I don't think my com com country would have done that. So uh, I think the States uh, is, uh, is, is being very proactive, I have to say. Lady next door, yeah. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Rosemary Seguero. I'm uh, the president of Hope for Tomorrow. I come from Kenya. And uh, what I wanted to comment and ask a question is, I may agree with the book or not agree the, with the book, because Kenya is not the only corrupt country in Africa. And while looking at the book, Kenya has over 50, 40 million people living in Kenya. The ministers and other important people are very few people. The majority are common people. So we cannot say Kenya cannot be supported or we have to do this. We as Kenyans or Africans, including the, as he said, we need to fight corruption from the grassroots, stopping funding from donors. Both donors are also corrupt. World Bank may be corrupt. IMF may be corrupt and the countries. So we just need to fight and support the Kenyans in Kenya and other parts of Africans. Not to say the support is not going because we we are looking at over 40 million who are in Kenya. The ministers are just even not a quarter of the ministry. So the thing is, I'm not, I may agree with the book or not agree, but uh, how can Your we question? St stop this corruption by collaborating in Kenya as Kenyans and other Africans? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Fra Frank, you actually want to comment? Yeah. Well, I, I just to get a general comment, and then Michaela can talk about Kenya. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, we in Transparency International, for example, have tried very hard to help to support domestic grassroots efforts in African countries and in many African countries because this is by no means just a Kenyan problem. And uh, Transparency International Kenya uh, got into a tremendous amount of difficulty. Actually, it was a group that John Gathongo at one point headed. It got into tremendous difficulty directly because its board of directors was too close uh, to the Kibaki government. So that there have been a lot of internal things, even in grassroots movements against corruption uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, as there have been in other regions. Uh, but there is, uh, and this is what's so encouraging. I mean, not that we should be discouraged totally about all this. There are people like uh, Nuhu, there are people like John, there are a lot of other people trying to develop grassroots public uh, campaigns. We have over 2,000 members of TI Zambia, for example. Uh, and they are having an effect. But it's, it's, you know, you march forward a couple of paces, then you slip back. It is a very, very difficult process, which enjoys, I think, very broad public support. But nevertheless, the power of those who actually do hold power uh, is considerable, and we shouldn't underestimate it. But maybe that's a general comment. I don't know if Michaela wants to add. Yeah, no, I, I just want to say that I think one of the problems is... Um, that those 50 million Kenyans are directly affected by what their ministers do. Goldenberg, which some people believe was as much as $3 billion worth of money when was stolen, 
you know, it created a 10-year economic recession. And I think people didn't connect up the dots in Kenya. They often don't, because Goldenberg was very complicated. Nobody understood what happened there. Nobody understood how that scam worked. And I remember talking to, you know, Kenyans, ordinary Kenyans, and saying, you know, who are you going to vote for in the next elections? These were Kikuyus, and they were saying, well, we're going to vote for Kibaki. And I was saying, how can you vote for Kibaki after Anglo leasing, which by then had been publicized? And they were saying, ah, big stuff, doesn't affect us. You know, that's what the polit political elite doesn't really affect us. And you kind of go, yeah, it does affect you. And I think that's why the grain scandal in Kenya has been so interesting, because people are suddenly seeing if Ruto does this stuff, we don't have enough to eat. It's the same thing. These guys are screwing us. They're not just taking the money and we don't pay the price. We do pay the price. So I think, you know, the people are connecting it all up now. They're not stupid. And the more that happens, the more the grassroots will hold their own ministers to account. You know, Kenyans can vote these people out. I um, assume that free media plays in crucial... Yeah, and the media in Kenya is really impressive. Really very, uh, very open, very pioneering. Um, uh, you know, they have their political affiliations, and sometimes you can see that in the coverage. But, you know, they've been very brave uh, in the past. Um, um, and, uh, you know, a lot is very openly said in Kenya. It's, 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 um, it's, it's very bracing coverage. I don't have that much time left, but why don't we take uh, questions over here? Um, and, and let's do a group question, but um, please keep it short. Well, Ma'am, why don't one? you start? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my name is Marty Burgess, and I'm an interested bystander. I have actually two questions. One comment about the tribal mentality that you talked about. The two sides of that, the side of caring for your own, as well as the corruption that it can become. And then the idea of the of Bush's millennial challenge, and how he included the possi the uh, the lowering of of uh, the problems that they have, the 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 political problems before they get money. Okay, um, Miss. Hello, my name is Joyce Mwundi. I am Kenyan, and I'm an intern with Constituency for Africa. And my question is with regard to ethnicity as well. Um, last week, I had the privilege of meeting Martha Karua, who was the justice minister. And in reading some other articles, um, Prime Minister Raila Odinga notes that they both agree that ethnicity in Kenya seems to be a secondary struggle. And I wonder what your opinions on that are, because they were citing that with the elections, he got the votes in Garissa and other provinces, and those were not his political affiliations. Same way with the violence that occurred, that was the poor against the poor. And so according to them, it's a political struggle or, or a class struggle, a social class struggle in terms of wealth. And I just wanted to find out what your views on that are. One more. Uh, Will Amatruda, Catholic University. How would you compare and contrast Kenya and Eritrea? Uh, Eritrea had, at least at one time, a reputation for very low uh, corruption, and yet one could perhaps accurately say that in both countries it's the politics stupid, the only difference being that in Kenya it's ethnic policy, uh, politics and in Eritrea it was ideological politics. Thank you. Um, the um, class struggle versus ethnic struggle thing, it's poverty is definitely the issue, but it takes ethnic form um, and a very overt and obvious ethnic form. 
because um, if you're going to go out because you feel that you've been screwed, not to put it uh, to find a point, it, um, you know, you're going to, you, the target of your anger is, is going is gonna to take a shape. And if you've had a politician who's telling you, you know, uh, it's so-and-so, it's the Luos down the road or it's the Kikus down the road who, who are screwing you, then that's going to be, that you're going to go down and burn down their shop. Uh, and I was in Kisumu when the, the looting took place. I've never seen a place that was looted more thoroughly or with more energy. Um, and it was really obvious that certain, you know, it was the Kikuyu shops that were being looted in Kisumu and the Asian shops. And uh, we were sitting in a hotel watching this happen in front of us. It was like television, you know. Um, and it was never touched because it was run by a local luo. So, yes, basically, this is a class issue because um, the, the, the thieving elite is, 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 the, the, is, uh, is of all classes. But, um, but it's taking ethnic form because it's been manipulated in that way. The, de the, the political leaders are, are playing the ethnic card to you know, deliberately. It's not, not by chance. So I would disagree with what uh, Martha Karua and uh, Ryla are saying. I mean, if you're a Kenyan politician, you tend to downplay that stuff because you're sort of, you're still talking the talk of, of a nation state and, you know, we don't have an ethnic problem here. It is wishful thinking, I'm afraid. Um, Eritrea and Kenya. I think in Eritrea, I haven't been to Eritrea for three years. They won't give me a visa now. I don't know why. Uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I, my second book was about Eritrea um, and was also quite critical of the new government. Um, and uh, I, I think Eritrea uh, is t totally untransparent, you know, and there's no press, uh, uh, open press at all. Uh, very difficult for journalists to go at all. So we don't really know what's happening. But what's quite clear is that um, the companies that are have the blessing of the government are the ones that are getting all the contracts now and the private sector has been completely sabotaged and undermined. They don't get import licenses anymore. That seems to me is intrinsically very corrupt. I don't believe that Isaias, the Eritrean president, is the kind of guy who's going to go out and buy, you know, palaces and villas in the south of France. It's not his style. But yes, I do believe now, if you have total control over uh, and, and a total lack of uh, transparency and no one gets to see your budget, you are going to end up with massive corruption, and I'm pretty sure that that's taking place now. We're never going to know, though, because there's no open press. Sorry, I'm afraid I can't remember what your question was. On the, on the Millennium Challenger. Uh, oh, I don't know. Yes. Sorry, Frank. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, by, I think, pointing out... I mean, one of the, the uh, things I try and do in my book is, is to point out that that's happening. Because I think, you know, if you're a Kenyan, you're going to think, well, you know, I'm just helping my brother. You know, I'm doing the right thing. But, of course, you know, that's, that's what everyone says. And I, I, I think um, I've had a lot of really nice emails from Kenyans who are saying, I'm reading this book, I'm finding it very painful to read because they're being confronted along the way with a certain pattern of behavior and realizing that it is part of the problem. Because if you're going to behave like that way yourself, you can't criticize those above who do the same thing en masse. Well, that's the way you feel. You know, you feel, I can't, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same phenomena. They're taking care of us. It's, you know, it's our turn to eat. And I think, I, I hope that this will trigger people to look more carefully at what they do. You know, you have to have meritocratic systems. If you are sort of ringing up a teacher, giving them a bribe and asking them to give your cousin a better mark, 
mark in, a, in an exam. That's a quite dangerous form of... It, it may seem harmless, but it's a dangerous form of, uh, of corruption. And what you see is those things in so many aspects of people's lives. And it, you think you're doing something helpful, um, benign, but it isn't. And you have to be, you know, become more alert to the fact that it isn't benign. Well, uh, I think discussion of the Millennium Challenge Corporation really is for another day and for, for another place. But very briefly, giving money directly to governments and telling them to use it to end their own corruption strikes me as slightly naive. <laughs> and uh, I've never understood quite. I've, I've had lots of conversations with them. I've never quite understood this. I mean, it's the sort of Bush administration came out uh, Really, the Clinton administration could have done it too, and the Obama administration seems to continue it, uh, and simply said, we want to end corruption. So here, corrupt fellow, here's a pack of money. Now, now be honest. It, and what are they using as their database? They're using Transparency International surveys, which I really don't think quite reach that level of uh, accuracy, uh, and World Bank surveys on, on governance indicators. And, and frankly, I think it's a farce, but maybe we should discuss that in another forum at another time. You'll be happy to hear that uh, Cato has published a paper by Ian Vasquez on uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation and its impact on economic growth. Um, some of you might find it of interest that Cato has also published a paper by John Githongo on, uh, the, the, uh, on corruption in Kenya. Uh, once again, uh, let me uh, commend this book to you. Thank uh, our speakers for coming and for giving fantastic presentations, really some of the best I've heard uh, in my um, years at Cato. And uh, thank you all very much for coming. Please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you.